Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank that you that your love is deep and your love is wide and it covers us. Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, we thank you for those that have gone before and made such tremendous sacrifices. And we thank you that you have gone before, Lord Jesus, and made such an incredible sacrifice. And we claim the blood of that covenant over this place. And so in your name, Lord Jesus, I say that nothing evil may lie to us this morning. And uh, Lord, I ask that we would be open and we would be receptive to your word. Uh, in Jesus Christ's name, I pray it, Lord God. Amen. All right, if you would take out your S News. Okay, just go ahead and take out your S News. Do you all have an S News? Go ahead and take it out. If you don't have an S News here, Derek, you need one of these. Okay, you can, pay, you can just use a piece of... Oh, you got it. Okay, take out your S News. Anybody that doesn't have an S News, you can just use a piece of paper, all right? So do you, do you need one there, Lynn? There you go. You can pass those around. But... And you can pass those back here, but my wife will get mad at me because she cleans up the sanctuary. Okay, so go ahead and just take a piece of paper. Kelly, or you, Sylvia, I don't know if you, you guys want one of these. Okay, here you go. I'll just give you the stack, okay? All right, so take out your S News and roll it into a tube about an inch and a half across, all right? Now, you have to do this because I'm in authority, and the Bible says to submit to those in authority, okay? So roll up your tube like this, about an inch and a half across. Now, when I tell you, this is what you're going to do. You're going to put the tube up to your right eye, okay? And then you're going to hold your left hand, palm, don't do it yet, <laughs> palm forward, halfway down the tube toward your face, all right? So go ahead, close your eyes, hold up the tube, all right? Uh, put up your left palm. Now, when I tell you, open your eyes. Ready? Everything ready? Now, open your eyes. Oh, my gosh! Do you see that? Do you see it? Do you see it? There's a... No, your palm is facing you. Okay, palm is facing Do you see it? There's a, there's a hole in your hand. Do you see the hole in your hand? Do you see it? A hole... Right, there's a hole right there in your hand. Or maybe there's a hole in your head. Yeah? <laughs> Okay, try this. Run it. Go up to your neighbor like this. Put the tube right next to their head. Look down the tube. Oh my gosh, there's a hole in this man's head. Brooke, did you know there's a hole in his head? Your husband said there's a hole in it. There's a hole in Derek's head. There's a hole in his head, a hole in your hand, and you saw it, didn't you? You did it correctly, you saw it. And yet, you didn't scream in terror. Why? Well, because you didn't believe that there was actually a hole in your hand. And yet, you could not prove that there was not a hole in your hand. And you might say, well, I didn't feel a hole in my hand. But how do you know that your feelings are right and your sight is wrong? I mean, sometimes I sleep on my arm. My arm like goes to sleep. I can't feel it, but I can see it, right? So how do you know that you don't have a hole in your hand and a hole in your head? How do you know that I'm actually here? How do you know that I'm actually talking to you at this moment? Your brain could be on a shelf in an alien laboratory as they program stimuli into your cerebral cortex to see what your response might be. I could be an illusion. I could be a hallucination. I could be a figment of your imagination. I mean, you might not actually be seeing me, but your own mental construction of me. You might be insane. 
Maybe you really do have a hole in your hip and, and your hand. And for a moment, for a moment, you saw the truth and were sane. While the rest of your life, you were insane. Insane because you thought you were sane. Do, 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 do. See, it seems that we're all born with rather empty heads. A, a newborn receives stimuli, right? All sorts of sensory inputs, smells, tastes, visions. But the baby doesn't know what any of it means. And so the baby has no categories for what he or she experiences. So immediately the baby begins to construct a psychological map, a psyche. The English word psyche comes from the Greek word suke, which usually gets translated life or soul. So I have a suke, a psyche. But, but what is the I that has the psyche? As soon as I try to define I, it becomes part of my psyche, and so it's not I, but my perception of I I that is that it, that has now become me. I observe me, and so I remain a mystery, like spirit in dust. That over time constructs a soul that I perceive as me, my psyche. Well, anyway, when a baby is born, he or she immediately begins to construct a psychological map. He or she immediately begins to connect the dots and describe meaning, and wherever there are holes, the mind fills them in. And that's where psychological or optical illusions are created. With your psyche, you are making assumptions about reality to make more psyche. You're trying to make sense of your world, but some of the sense is nonsense. Or maybe all of the sense is nonsense. Our most powerful tool for making sense of our worlds and constructing a psyche is the word. We use word to ascribe meaning. In fact, in Greek, the word word means meaning or reason, it's the word logic, from whence we get our English word logic, from logos. We, we all use logos to construct a reality that feels predictable, because predictable feels safe. And that's what science and technology is all about. Science labels things and looks for predictable patterns. However, there is no logical reason to say that what normally happens will always happen, or even happens at all. Let me say that again. There is no logical reason to say that what normally happens will always happen, or even happens at all, since we're trusting our senses and using our psyches to create our mental maps. Now, I, I, totally, I totally love science. But science is simply faith in what most people perceive as usually happening. Well, we say that a person is grown up and reasonable when they've put a label on everything and constructed a stable psyche. 
And yet that's obviously a bit insane because we all must lose our psyches. We're all going to die. Even if we gained our psyches, perhaps we've already lost them. I mean, once you label everything, once you label everything, define everything, and can predict everything, you live in a world with, well, just no wonder. A world with no mysteries. Uh, That is a world with no spirit. A world with no persons. You know exactly what you are. I am carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, homo sapien, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, slightly passive-aggressive with a sanguine personality and 3.72 GPA. You've defined, judged, and created yourself and your world. In other words, you're grown up. You know what you are, but maybe you no longer know who you are. You know everything, but do not know what anything means. Or or maybe we could say this, you know what everything means, but the meaning is dead. (laughs) It's like you've crucified the meaning in order to get the meaning to fit inside your psyche, but everything in your psyche, everything in your life is now like dead. Well, last time, two weeks ago, we discussed the fact that Jesus said this, whoever would save his psyche will lose it. But whoever loses his psyche, for my sake, will find it. For my sake, for my psyche. Last time we saw how Jesus left the crowds in Israel and led his disciples into a boat out on a sea in a raging storm where they got psyched out. Lost their psyche and gained Christ's psyche. And now they arrive on the other side of the sea. This story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we'll look at Mark's version. Jesus has just calmed the storm on the sea. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of that country. Now, you may not believe that there are such things as unclean spirits, which means you probably do not believe that there are such things as spirits which means that you are nothing but dust and chemicals. And that's a bit absurd, isn't it? Because dust and and chemicals do not believe anything. But you do. Even if it's absurd. Like that you're only dust and chemicals. Well, anyway, this man has an unclean spirit. He may have a chemical imbalance, but not just a chemical imbalance. His spirit is afflicted by an unclean spirit that has affected his psyche. He thinks, I am dead. 
He lives among the tombs, among the caves on the side of the mountain. He thinks, I am alone. He's cut off from society. He thinks, I am evil. I need to be punished. He's cutting himself with stones. He thinks, I'm confused and divided. It's hard to tell if the man is talking or the unclean spirit is talking. And, and the demon tells the man that he is the man and he is legion. A legion is 6,000 men. So he thinks, I'm dead, I'm alone, I'm evil, I'm divided, I'm naked. He's unclothed and unfinished. Luke makes it clear that he's naked. He's unclothed and unfinished. That's his psyche. And he thinks, I don't belong. This is a picture of me in what some think may have been one of the tombs or one of the caves in which the garrison demoniac lived. We had been in Capernaum on the other side of the sea where Jesus lived, along with Peter for a time, and taken a boat across the sea to the land of the Gerasenes near Syria, or, or used to be Syria. It's Gentile territory. This is what the man would have seen from his tomb. The sea, which is a picture of hell, and on the other side, the promised land. You see, this man believed that he was the other. Isaiah 65, 4, one who sits in tombs, spends the night in secret places, who eats pig's flesh. Pig's flesh. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe that's your psyche. But maybe that's not who you really are. You think, I am the other, but maybe you're not. You think, I am unloved, but maybe something is lying to you about that. You think, I am unloved, and you really like pig flesh, particularly bacon. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, the, the, the legion begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. 2,000 pigs! And, and you may wonder, God, why did the pigs have to die? Right? Answer, I don't know. I don't know why the pigs had to die. But why did all the sacrificial animals in the temple have to die for like 1,500 years? Why did the lamb have to die when the leper was healed? Why did the pigs drown in the sea? Well, maybe you're one of those people that just doesn't have sympathy for pigs, so you think, big deal. Well, this should get your attention. I did a little research. 2,000 pigs is like 40,000 pounds of bacon. <laughs> Why bacon? Of course, what makes breakfast in bed so special is you're lying down and eating bacon, the most beautiful thing on earth. <laughs> that bacon tray is always at the end of the buffet. You regret all the stuff on your plate. <laughs> what am I doing with all this worthless fruit? <laughs> I should have waited. If I had known you were here, I would have waited. I would eat only you, bacon. But you can't eat only bacon, because it's terrible for you. You know bacon's bad when a healthier choice is a donut. 
Bacon's like the opposite of medicine. It's like, ah, take that, Lipitor, I'm bacon. <laughs> We've known bacon is bad for us for thousands of years. It's literally a restriction on entering certain religions. Our rules, no killing, no cheating on your wife, no bacon. <laughs> what was that last one? No bacon. I'm in the wrong line. Is there a bacon line around here? The pig is an amazing animal. You feed a pig an apple, it makes bacon. I find that impressive. Let's see Michael Phelps do that, huh? The pig, the pig is turning an apple, essentially garbage, into bacon. That's magic, or the most successful recycling program ever. Really, the pig is man's best friend. I love dogs, but pigs would be good companions, and then when they die, you could have a barbecue. Sorry your pig died. Can I come over for breakfast? And have some bacon? Bacon is that good. I bet if you put bits of bacon on a strip of bacon, you could travel back in time. It's like a tasty vortex. It'd be kind of redundant for me, because I would just travel back to when I was eating bacon. <laughs> well, I wonder if you could get trapped in like a tasty bacon space-time vortex. Have all the bacon you want, but then you might not want the bacon that you have. You know, some people seem to have all that they want, and then they don't want what they have. Spoiled children have all they want, but don't want what they have. That's because they're so focused on the gifts, they've lost sight of the giver. You know, God made pigs with a word, and the word was Jesus. So God loves pigs. I mean, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about the pigs, okay? God, Jesus says, I make all things. You don't have to worry about the pigs. God loves pigs and shellfish and lobsters. They're good, not bad. No one really knows why God forbade the Jews from eating that stuff. It wasn't because bacon was bad for you. Or that pigs were bad. Unlike what Jim Gaffigan just said, I think it was probably more something just like the opposite. Because he's right. In a rural society, pigs eat garbage and they turn it into bacon. And pork chops. And, and ham and spare ribs. Valuable stuff. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 10, God reveals to Peter that he can eat whatever he wants. It's like he's saying, look, if you get Jesus... If you see my heart, children, you can have all the bacon you want. You just go right to the end of the buffet. Jesus makes it clean. Because he makes you clean. And if you're clean, you won't worship bacon. Bacon's good, but worshiping bacon is insane. The herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed, literally demonized. Okay, the demon didn't own this guy, but afflicted him and lied to him. They saw the demonized man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. They, they saw this demonized man with Jesus. Jesus is the way. 
out of hell. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We are finished in him. We are literally clothed in his righteousness. He's the logos, the reason, the word of God, through whom everything is made and we are made. He is God's psyche. He is the very definition of love and sanity. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demonized Man, Scripture says we all wrestle with principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness. They came to Jesus and saw the demonized man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demonized man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You see what just happened? They see love incarnate. They see the psyche of God. They see sanity. And they beg him to leave. And now you gotta ask, who's insane? It turns out that both the Gerasenes and the demoniac were in bondage to hell. Both the Gerasenes and the demoniac were insane, but the demoniac had been closest to sane, for he was closest to realizing that he was insane. And because the Gerasenes thought they were sane, they were the most insane. Maybe sometimes you think you're just going insane, but really you're going sane. Maybe sometimes you think you got it all figured out, and you're just plain nuts. Well, the Gerasenes are terrified of Jesus. Is it because Jesus is mean and ungrateful? Jesus is coming, he's mean and ungracious and wrathful. No, I think it's probably something more like just the opposite. Well, anyway, they're terrified of Jesus and beg him to leave. Does that make sense to you? About 27 years ago, I was at the evening service at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. At the time, I was in seminary and getting mostly A's in theology, marriage and family counseling, psychology, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I knew knew the stuff. I was helping my friend Scott pray for people, and a man came forward and shared about his sexual struggles. Now, some of those may have had genetic roots or roots in abuse or all sorts of things. I don't know. But when Scott started praying for this guy, it was like this unseen force just grabbed hold of his body, and he fell on the ground convulsing. Scott commanded this thing to leave, and it did. The next thing I know, the man sitting next to Scott, asking him questions in his right mind, thanking Jesus. I alluded to that in my last sermon and the fact that I had seen all kinds of fake garbage up to that point, but that night I knew this was real and I was terrified. Not of the demon, but of Jesus. I remember I had this overwhelming desire to just run from the place and watch TV over and over and over again. For I felt like someone had just set off a bomb inside my psyche and just blown it to bits. I realized that all my judgments were foolish and suspect and all my control was an illusion. Well, anyway, the garrisons, they beg Jesus to live, to leave. Why did they do that? Why did they beg Jesus to leave? Well, an obvious answer is that they really liked bacon, right? 
Or to be more precise, um, uh, they really liked money because it was worth a lot of money. Or to be more precise, they really liked m to spend money on themselves. They did a little research, found that an average pig is worth 450 bucks, which means Jesus ran $900,000 into the sea for one naked maniac living in a cave. 900,000 for those garrisons. I mean, that must have been their entire economy. They asked Jesus to leave because they loved their money more than a homeless man. Can you even imagine such a thing? According to a recent report from the BBC, 1.3 billion people in our world live on less than the equivalent of $1 a day. I mean, they actually filled up a basket with what $1 would buy in each country and figured out how many people lived on that a day. 1.3 billion. Just internalize that. According to CBS News, Americans spent $56 billion last year. Americans spent $56 billion last year on pet food alone. See, I think we may love our pets more than people. And don't get me wrong, God, God loves pets. It's just that I think maybe we could be like going insane. Our psyches put a higher value on things that we can take and own or perhaps consume than on people that we get to love. Sometimes we say stuff like this, well, God's not short of money, and God's got, you know, he's got nothing against money, and, and you're right. And if you believed that, then you would give your money away, trusting that God will give you more money if that's what was best. I mean, if you were like at a, at a crowd, a crowd of hungry people, and let's say you had like five loaves and two fish, for instance, and, and love told you to give the five loaves and two fish away, well, you just do it. Trusting that your Father in heaven was capable to make a banquet at, at any moment. To hang on to the five loaves and two fish, that would just be insane. And I'm insane. And so I need to give. Not because God won't provide for others but because God is providing for me. He's curing me of insanity and using a hungry person, a poor person, a needy person to do it. Dr. Carl Menninger wrote this, generous people are very rarely mentally ill. Well, the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave. They preferred pigs to people. But I bet it wasn't simply for the money that they got from the pigs. Psychologically, which means according to the reason or the logos of your psyche, psychologically, pigs are easier to handle than people. I mean, you all know this, right? It's much easier to fit a dog, a cat, or a pig into your world than a person. Because you can control a pig, relatively. But, 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 but not a person. Maybe that's sometimes why we prefer dogs to people. Why sometimes uh, we also treat people like dogs or demoniacs like pigs. We're trying to make sense of them, control them, name them, reduce them, fit them into our psyche. And so to fit them into our psyche, what do we do? We judge them, we condemn them, and we dehumanize them. We despiritize them. Basically, we kill them to us. 
You see, it's so much easier to enjoy my bacon if I believe the old lunatic on the hill um, that he had it coming, that he did something that, that, that I would never do, or, or if I believe that he's fundamentally different than me, or if I believe, you know, and I think that I can somehow have the capacity to label him as a psychotic, a neurotic, an alcoholic, a Jew, a wop, a spick, a sinner, a pagan, if I can think of him as a dog or, or a pig, but if he's a person just like me, Spirit in clay, breath of God, mystery in dust, and being tormented by evil, well then, I'm not in control. And we need a savior. But when we demand that everything fit into our own psyche, we must dehumanize others and we go insane. Isn't that an amazing video? It appears that Hitler loved his dog, and yet he could not love Anne Frank or Albert Einstein or that other Jew, Jesus. Why? Well, maybe because they were just too big to fit into his psyche. They were just too terrifying and too uncontrollable for his psyche. And he tolerated no holes in his psyche, no mystery, and so no people, no real people. And so Adolf was enslaved to evil and insane. He was like a universe unto himself with no room for another. His, his psyche became his prison, and that's hell. Isn't that an amazing and, well, disturbing video? Disturbing, for it appears that Adolf Hitler loved something. A small something, but, but loved it. And that might mean he's a person. Spirit in clay. Breath of God in dust being tortured by evil. You know, it's easiest to think of him as some kind of inhuman, sociopathic monster. But if he's something like me, I need a savior like he needs a savior. And that can really mess up my psyche. It destroys my mental map. It obliterates my pride. Well, the Gerasenes begged Jesus to leave. And Hitler made the Jews leave. He murdered the Jews, and thus Jesus, the king of the Jews. He hated Jesus and made his own hell. He hated Jesus, but loved his dog. I wonder how he'd feel about a lamb. You think Hitler could love a little lamb? 
a lamb small enough and meek enough to descend into his hell? Is something like that even possible? Well, the Gerasenes like pigs more than people. And they definitely like pigs more than the creator of all people. And they like bacon more than they like Jesus. And ironically, Jesus makes all the bacon. So they worshiped and served the creator rather than, or the creature. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshiped and served the bacon rather than the bacon maker. They loved the gifts more than the gift giver. They were like spoiled children, and spoiled children are trapped in their own hell. They're trapped in their own psyche. They're trapped in their own illusion of control. They get whatever they want, and they don't want whatever they get because they've forgotten the giver of the gifts. It's the love in the gifts that makes the gifts worth getting. And so the father of the spoiled child has to take the gifts away in order to give himself and later give the children all things with him. So Jesus shows up and he runs all the bacon into the sea along with the local economy and everyone's psyche they freak out and they beg him to leave, revealing that they don't love love and that they are, in fact, insane. They're no different than the demoniac in the tombs. They beg the way, the truth, and the life to leave. They beg the logos to leave. And and I used to say this. This next verse is the most terrifying verse in all of Scripture. For they beg sanity to leave, and he does. It appears that if you choose to go to hell, you can. I used to say that. And I still believe that. Yet I don't think I read the verse very well. Jesus leaves, but he doesn't leave without hope, without leaving hope. Next verse. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized with demons begged him that he might be with him. With, to, to be with the logos, the, the logic. I mean, that's the very definition of sanity, isn't it? The man begged to be with him, and Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell, anangolo. It means literally angel talk, and tell, anangolo, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. They didn't ask him to leave. They listened and marveled. So anyway, Jesus, gift of the Father, psyched everyone out, left, and maybe you feel a little bit psyched out too. Because you're thinking to yourself, you're thinking, gosh, I'm not sure that I'm any better than the Gerasenes. I've asked the life to leave. I've asked love to leave. Hell, I've asked truth to leave. Every time I lie, I ask truth to leave, and I do it for far less than 40,000 pounds of bacon. Has he laughed? Does he love me? Am I, Peter, am I, you, whoever, am I worth anything to him? Well, yeah. Jesus left but not without a witness. In fact, it was the one that they had judged as a pig. 
Jesus entrusted his word to the demoniac, and they heard his word through the demoniac. In verse 20, everyone marveled. Jesus captured their hearts, the one they judged a pig. He, like, fit into their world, like a baby in a manger. He fit into their world, and then there in their world, he just blew their psyches Wide open, he was the very first evangelist. Did you know this? He was the very first evangelist, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He preached in all the Decapolis, the Ten City region. That's a region larger than Galilee. And what did he preach? It must have been something like this. When I thought that I was utterly worthless, because I thought that I was whatever I made myself to be, when I thought that I was utterly worthless, the Lord revealed to me that I am worth at least 2,000 pigs. Maybe that's why the pigs had to die. Maybe that's why the sacrifices had to be offered. Maybe that's why the lamb was slaughtered, so that when each of us comes to the end of ourselves, we could see just how much we're worth. How much we're worth when we think, with our psyche, that we're worthless. Well, as the first evangelist, the very first evangelist preached throughout the Decapolis, Jesus, the Lamb of God, preached throughout Israel. And after three years, his own people judged him, condemned him, and hung him up on their tree of knowledge. According to their law, their psyche, according to God's law, God's psyche, on that very same tree, the Lamb of God absorbed the sin of the world, descended into hell, and gave us his life on the tree of life. No mortal man can completely and fully understand that and explain that to you. No one can understand it, but we can understand this. You are worth far more than 2,000 pigs. When you are at your very worst, you are worth God. The life of God. You are worth God himself and Jesus the Christ. You are worth the Lamb of God who bore your sin to destruction. You are worth God to God, and now he wants you to tell the world how much you're worth and how great is his mercy. That is, how great is Jesus, the psyche of God. Many years ago, Susan and I were praying for a friend who uh, had been ritually abused as a little girl and sold to this man, a certain man. The demon took the name of the man. She can't remember what I'm about to tell you, because the demon, and I know this is weird, okay, so whatever. But anyway, the demon had seized control of her body and was speaking through her mouth. She, she can't remember it, but I don't think I'll ever forget it, because I commanded this thing to leave, and it just mocked me, saying, I don't have to leave. I paid for her. And then this idea popped into my head. I, I reached down and I took the communion cup that was sitting on her coffee table full of wine. I held it up in front of her face and the demon's face and I said, what's worth more? That money that you paid for her? Or the blood of the only begotten Son of God? And this is what I don't think I'll ever forget. I remember this voice coming out of her, just screeching as it said, the blood 
And then it left. And she sat next to me, my friend, in her right mind. The demoniac sat next to Jesus in his right mind. He had lost his old psyche and gained the psyche of God. He had lost the illusion that he had to create himself and gained faith in his creator who is absolute love. He sat there clothed and in his right mind. He was clothed. What was he clothed with? He was clothed with the rightness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. He was completed and finished in Christ. You know, we're each to be clothed with Christ. Clothed with Christ. But to be clothed with Christ is to be unclothed of your old psyche, your old life. And I know that sounds terrifying. But it's terrifyingly good. We're the bride of Christ, and he clothes us with himself in the covenant of grace. And so I hope that you can trust what I'm about to say. I mean, I'm not trying to be crass or edgy or something like that. I'm trying to give you hope. But a little while ago, I read this article in Scientific American about sexuality and the brain. Researchers were surprised to find that at uh, the moment of climax in sexual union or communion for a moment for a moment much of a woman's brain literally stops in hebrew shabbat she literally loses her psyche in the bridegroom's psyche we're the bride and jesus is the bridegroom Losing your life, your soul, your psyche sounds terrifying, but a beloved bride experiences that as ecstasy. For in that moment, she knows with all of her being, I am not the other. I am the beloved. You see, your psyche is built on a lie that was told by a snake in a garden long ago that you must pay for love. God's psyche is the truth that God is love. You can't pay for God. The truth that God is love and has already paid absolutely everything for you. And so on the night that he was betrayed, when we were at our very worst, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this cup is the covenant. Are you listening, bride? This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the psyche of God. And I'm warning you, it will destroy your psyche and set you free. So come to the table and surrender to your Lord in Jesus' name because he's good. Amen.
So, Lord God, we thank you that you have entered our dreams. You have entered our illusions. You have entered our false psyches. And you are waking us to life. Because, Lord, when people wake up too quick, they freak out sometimes. And they punch the person that's waking them up. And we want to receive you, Lord God. So we thank you for waking us up to life and doing it through Jesus the Christ, your word. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so do you see why we preach this stuff and sing the songs and everything? It's because um, Jesus is coming back. One day he will come to your town. In fact, I can say this confidently, within one generation, within your lifetime. Now, that may look like, uh, from some other perspective, the end of time, or it may be the end of your time, but you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. And when you see him coming, I don't want you to freak out and ask him to leave. And you say, well, that would never happen. And I go, well, don't be so sure. It's already happened once. Remember, he came. And we freaked out, and we asked him to leave rather violently. But he does not leave himself without a witness. And you're one of those witnesses. In fact, one of the very first witnesses was a dude way worse than this demoniac in the cave. In fact, way worse than Hitler, according to Scripture. His name was Saul of Tarsus, chief of sinners. And God entrusted his word to Saul, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what most of us kind of are or were. And uh, now you have that word. And so may you go out into the world and tell the world exactly how much you are worth and how deep is the love of God and how great is his mercy. In the name, Jesus. Believe the gospel. Amen.